KHP, patron exclusive, 002, Swamp. My employer, a geological surveying company based out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, was awarded a contract by the United States federal government to survey an area of land 50 or so miles into the state. This particular division of the government awarded the company over $2 million to gather as much data as possible about a very specific patch of marshlands, an undisclosed amount of time northeast of Pittsburgh. There were five of us that were sent on this job, with more equipment packed into our trailers than I have ever seen set aside for one job. Each of us were handpicked for our specialties and knowledge, both in our professional and in our personal lives. The area we were going to was only described to us as marshy swampland. When we asked for more information, there was no response from the government contacts. Upon hearing no response, we decided to look at the most up-to-date satellite images that we could find using the GPS coordinates that were provided in the contract. This also gave us little information to use. The images only showed us that the area in question was roughly three square miles of dense forest with water coming out of the southeastern side of it. Surrounding the swamp was a thin forest that we could see into on the satellite photos. We couldn't glean much information from these either. Just maples, oaks, and pine trees sprawled out for miles and miles surrounding the area with no buildings, roads, or trails to speak of. Looking even further away, we did find a small dirt road a dozen or so miles from the site that we could use to get close to the area. The five of us packed into our company vehicles, a large cargo van that held our personal belongings, as well as some more sensitive instruments that we had brought with us. This van had a trailer attached to it that held a small motorboat that we would use to navigate the waterways of the swamp. Two large black trucks, each with a large enclosed gooseneck trailer, followed the van. The trailers looked like what you would see a race car transported in. But there was no race car. They were filled nearly full with different equipment, tents, and other things required for the job. We proceeded towards the marshlands, a thickly wooded area of dense brush, tall trees, slow-moving water, and pits of mud. The terms of data collection were very vague. Any and all information photos, samples, and specimens that could be gathered from within the three square miles of swamp should be collected and sent back to our agency. That was the gist of it. We just had to bring whatever we could back to the company so they could send it to the government. We had meetings with our expedition group and what were essentially the boss of our boss's boss. They said that we would be paid quite well for our endeavor. A year's salary, paid in full upon completion, was the reward. The downside was that we would have to spend nearly a month on-site gathering information. Of course, we had the option to decline the offer, and two employees actually did due to family requirements. They were quickly replaced with suitable people that could get the job done and were willing to spend a month away from civilization. After about an hour on the road, we pulled into a Flying J truck stop to stretch our legs and have our final meal 
within the company of strangers. It also gave us an opportunity to stock up on personal snacks, drinks, toiletries, all reimbursed by the company, of course. We sat inside the Denny's that was within the truck stop and had an okay meal. During the meal, we began to discuss the plan of attack for the Marshlands. I remember everybody sitting in the booth, smiling and joking, fantasizing about what we would do with all this extra money after the job was done. We all became a bit quieter as our meals arrived and we began eating, still thinking about how to spend all of the money that we were going to be getting. I think I should introduce you to everybody so that you have a bit of an idea about who we were dealing with in the group. My name is Styles, and I was the equipment guy, well-versed in setting up and lugging around the equipment to where it was needed and setting it up quickly in the field. If something broke, I was the one that repaired it. I was proficient in setting up the camp and the solar arrays that would be needed to power the campsite. I was responsible to pack the trailers and prep the vehicles as well. Thinking about how we were all sitting in that booth at Danny's, Auburn was next to me. Auburn was the numbers guy. He had a PhD in something. When he talked about his education, it turned into bragging and ramblings about every other subject other than his college career. I'd assume his degree is engineering or environmental studies of some sort. Scheller was the nature guy. In addition to being a geologist, he was also an avid outdoorsman. He would be able to take soil and rock samples, identify flora and fauna around the marsh, and log what kind of potential ecological life was at stake if the government or the state decided to allow construction in the area. Morrison was the glue that held everything together. In some circles, he would be called the leader. In addition to being amazing with the use of our technology in the field, he was the planner and the thinker. During his off time, he had been mapping out the marsh in grids that we could tackle in small parts each day. He also listed the exact equipment that would be required for each portion of the expedition. Last was Tedder. Tedder was the black sheep. He grew up somewhere between New York and Boston. At least that's what we think based on his accent. He always kept us guessing and never gave us that answer. He was the computer guy, but unlike Morrison who knew our field equipment, Tedder knew the workings of a computer inside and out. He would be able to log, sort, and interpret the data being fed to him from our equipment. We loaded into the vehicles and proceeded in our small convoy for the highway once again. I quickly dozed off in the passenger seat of one of the trucks for roughly an hour and a half before I was jostled awake by the truck hitting a pothole. Looking out the window, we were driving down a poorly maintained asphalt road. I looked in the side mirror and saw the image of a mobile home slowly shrinking into the distance. I think we drove about another 20 minutes before making a turn onto a dirt road. The last house we had seen was that mobile home a few miles behind us. The fields and farmland that were well-maintained turned into unruly fields, packed with patches of bushes, thorns, and weeds 
before turning into sparse woods. Saplings and smaller trees were beginning to edge their way into the fields, making it difficult to determine what was once a field and what was now forest. It was another 15 minutes of driving through forested land when I felt the truck slow down and looked forward. We had come to the end of the dirt road, the same one that we had seen on the satellite imagery. I saw Tedder get out of the van, take a few steps off the road, and motion for us to come and see what he saw. It was a gate, once bright orange judging by the remnants of dulled paint that hadn't flaked off yet. There was a padlock, long rusted and forgotten, hanging on a small metal hook. Looking past the gate, I could see tall grass in what seemed to be once a trail. Now it was just an eight-foot-wide area where trees hadn't grown in yet. Tedder asked if we had a hammer or something to knock the lock off with. Being the one that knew the equipment, I said, yeah, there's a hammer in the truck that we're going to use for the tent stakes. I walked towards the van to grab the hammer as Morrison and Auburn got into an argument about the legality of what we were doing. When I returned, I heard the last part of a rant from Scheller telling everybody that the land was the government's, and they would be fine with us breaking the lock to go do research for them. Then someone mentioned hauling in the equipment by hand, and I thought about it for a moment. Two full trailers of equipment, plus our personal stuff, and a small bass boat to top it all off? No way that was happening. I swung the sledge down and hit the lock, sending rust and bits of metal flying like shrapnel. Everyone covered their faces and ducked out of the way, as it took a few hits to finally break the lock. I stood up and asked if anybody knew how long it was going to be until it was dark. Tedder replied, saying that we had about four hours left. I said that we should get moving, as it was going to take us about an hour to navigate the trail to the swamp, plus two or three hours to set up camp, if the trail even led to the swamp. The others nodded, and we began walking to our vehicles driving through the tall grass and small bushes that had grown up through the once-packed dirt. The trucks followed. The trailers were just small enough to fit through without becoming stuck. The trees scraped against the tops and the sides as we followed the tire tracks of the van. The trail grew darker as the trees became thicker and taller, making the sunlight that we had left less and less useful. Tedder turned on a light bar that was positioned on top of the cab of the van illuminating everything in our front and side views. Thick brush seemed to grow a few feet off the trail. A few smaller bushes with only a year or two's growth had attempted to grow on the trail. We actually lost the trail a few times. The brush had grown up and obscured the path, making it hard to tell where we should go. The remains of the trail ended in a clearing, roughly a half mile from the swamp. It had taken us nearly an hour to navigate the nearly invisible trail, but it paid off. It was large enough to fit our vehicles to one side, with a stream large enough to fit the boat into on the other side. Looking at maps of the area and referencing our GPS coordinates, none of them showed this clearing on it. We began setting up camp. Each of us had a small, four-person tent for their belongings. These tents would be in a half-circle shape, facing the larger canopies that we had for our equipment. Two large GP medium canvas military tents, 18 feet wide by 52 feet long, 
were what contained our equipment. They were a massive pain in the ass to set up with only five people, as they had been designed to be set up by a platoon of soldiers. But the feat was doable if you knew what you were doing. One of the tents had a hole in the roof that we attached a small wood stove and stovepipe to for cooking. I had just finished running the pipe through the roof when I heard Morrison call out for me. I came outside and saw the rest of the group standing together as if they had just come to a decision. Morrison stepped forward and told me that he and the others had decided that they weren't going to set up the equipment tonight. There would be enough time to do it in the morning before going around the perimeter of the swamp. I stepped a few steps from the tent and looked at the sky. It had begun to turn from a blue to a light pink. We would only have another hour of daylight left, at most. I told them that if they wanted to set everything up in the morning, that we could. I would set up the solar array while they set up the equipment and made sure that it was all working. They agreed, and I could see all of their thoughts turn to food. It had been nearly seven hours since we ate. Nothing too significant happened on that first night. We sat in the large tent, the uh, one with the stove, and cooked some of our perishable foods by the light of an LED lantern. Hamburgers and corn on the cob was enough to satisfy us for the night. While Auburn cooked the burgers and corn, Scheller scouted out a few suitable trees for us to hang bear bags in, and I went to the van and unpacked a few tables and chairs for us to use. We all sat around the stove, as if it were a campfire, laughing and telling stories about issues on other job sites and the stupid people we've encountered in our careers. It had been dark nearly an hour when we finished our talk around the stove. Scheller had picked out bear bag trees, so we decided that him and Morrison should head to the edge of the clearing to hang the bags of food. The rest of us stayed in the tent and cleaned up from supper. Just as we finished, we heard the steps of Scheller and Morrison coming towards the tent at a jog. Scheller came in the tent first. He said that we wouldn't believe it even if we went and saw it ourselves. Opper made a joke, and it really got me. I think it went something like, What, you get spooked when you look down and saw your pecker? <laughs> Scheller's face turned more serious, and he looked at Morrison and told him to tell us. Morrison cleared his throat and told us that when they went to hang the bear bags, Scheller had spotted something. He went to look where Scheller was pointing and saw the trees were just, they seemed off, like they were planted by hand. Two rows of trees with a large gap between them. The trees were like this for at least as far as the flashlight would reach. Tedder said something like, Bullshit, you're just fucking with us. And Scheller got even more serious and challenged us to come look for ourselves. We all walked out of the tent and went to the edge of the clearing. Scheller shined his flashlight into the tree, illuminating the bear bag, and took a few steps to the side, looked at us and motioned to come and stand by him. We all stood piled in a group where he stood and looked. Just like they said, two neat rows of trees that we could not see an end to. Tedder still didn't think this was good enough and asked Scheller if he knew anything in geology that could have done this. Scheller offered that a slab of rock or high sulfur deposits and a few other rock nerd things as reasons that trees could have grown like that. But it was very 
very unlikely. Scheller began walking away then, shouting into the darkness that the only way we could know for sure is to do tests, and we can only start testing tomorrow. That night, I had a hard time sleeping. While lying in the dark, waiting for sleep, I thought of the last time that I slept in a tent. I was a junior in college, and we went on an overnight canoe trip down the river. I was the only one that knew how to set up the tent, and we had four college kids crammed into one small tent, drunk off the case of beer that we had after dinner, and after a few minutes we were all out like a light. I wish I had some beer now, I thought to myself as I finally dozed off. I awoke the next morning to a shout from just outside of my tent. It was Auburn shouting my name. I unzipped the tent and poked my head out, squinting my eyes nearly shut from the sunlight that was shining on my face. I saw Auburn standing a few feet away. He had red plaid pajama bottoms on and a gray t-shirt. In his hand was a spatula and a bag of bread. He held up the toast and the spatula and asked me in a tone that said he had been shouting my name for a while how many pancakes and pieces of toast I wanted. I replied with three cakes and two toast and asked what time it was. 7 a.m., he said confidently before walking away, only turning around to ask me if I wanted any sausage. I nodded and held up two fingers through the tent flap. He gave me a nod of acknowledgement and continued towards the GP tent. In my experience with him, Auburn has never been that much of a go-getter. The allure of a year's salary must have him really dedicated to putting 110% into the job. I got dressed and exited the tent. I saw a glimpse of Morrison as he ducked into the GP tent. I heard a few voices from inside, suggesting that everyone was preparing to sit down for breakfast. I looked around the clearing and saw Scheller coming towards the camp with the bear bags in his arms. He gave me a nod and I walked with him towards the smell of sausage and pancakes. We entered the tent and saw Morrison, Auburn, and Tedder at the table I had grabbed the previous night. Sausage, toast, and pancakes filling their plates. There were two empty seats for Scheller and me. Scheller put the bear bags on an empty table and I took a seat and began grabbing the foods I had requested from Auburn. We ate in relative silence. Everybody was enjoying the food and a few small conversations about how people slept or what the weather was shaping up to be like, and other generic small talk dotted the meal. Auburn went to get dressed while we cleaned the dining area. Scheller was pulling the food from the bear bag and laying it out on the empty table. The snacks we had bought from the truck stop were scattered in amongst other foods that the company had provided for us. When Auburn arrived from his wardrobe change, I discussed with everybody how we wanted to set up the equipment. Our soil sampling and water testing equipment, as well as surveying equipment and computers, would be in the second GP tent, while the solar array batteries and any leftover boxes and cases would be in the dining tent. We made a plan and everybody set out to do their jobs. Morrison and Auburn unloaded and moved equipment to where it was needed. Scheller set up the water and soil sampling machines, while Tedder assembled the computer equipment and I worked on the solar array. We had all of the equipment set up in three hours. A company record, if I had to guess. I looked at my watch, and it was 11.40. Time for lunch. 
deli meat sandwiches with some fresh peaches. We had a chest freezer that was attached to the solar array, giving us an ample supply of meat and other frozen delicacies during our excursion. Morrison sighed and spoke up. He told us that he did calculations this morning, and it looked like we would be walking about eight and a half miles. That meant that we wouldn't get back to the camp until roughly an hour after dark. That time also didn't include stops to get readings, samples, or if we encountered rough terrain that slowed us down. Scheller spoke up, saying that we could also encounter dangers like mud pits, poison ivy, sharp rocks, and other things that could harm us. We voted that we would wait until tomorrow to have a complete day to walk the perimeter. The afternoon was spent within sight of camp. Scheller was walking around various parts of the clearing, gathering soil samples with a hand auger, while Morrison and Auburn gathered baseline data on elevation around the clearing. Tedder and I walked to the stream and began grabbing samples of water. The waterway itself wasn't overly large for the area it was draining from. It was roughly 15 feet across, with banks that rose up, leveling 4 or 5 feet above the water. Loose sandy soil lined the banks, with the occasional smooth river stone in the mix. The stones increased in frequency as the bank neared the water's edge, until all you could see were stones lining the stream bed. We took some measurements to decide if the stream was deep enough for our boat. I was coaching Tedder through collecting samples of water, and he gave me attitude about it, saying that it wasn't his first rodeo, it was his second. Now, that was true. It was his second time collecting water samples. The first time had been a few months ago on a job to gather water quality samples and create a report for a client. Part of the samples needed to be retaken due to Tedder not allowing debris to settle before sampling. He bent at the waist and put the small sampling containers into the water slowly, allowing them to fill up without making the container force the air out in bubbles. We took our samples back to the tent and put them into a cooler for Morrison to analyze in a few minutes. We walked out of the tent and looked around the clearing. We didn't see any of the other guys working within it. I was just about to ask Tedder what we should do when we both saw movement near where the bear bags had been hung the previous night. We began walking towards the rest of the crew. We found Morrison, Auburn, and Scheller standing where we had stood the night before and looking towards the trees that Scheller had pointed out. They were in a discussion. Scheller was trying to come up with any reason that the trees would grow the way they did. He did a dig for a rock shelf and found nothing and he did enough tests to determine that the soil wasn't nutrient-depleted. Tedder asked if they had looked for more rows of trees close to here. Scheller said, yeah, walking a few hundred feet in each direction. Then I asked anyone if they walked to the end of the trail, to which they told me no. It was nearing dinner time when we began walking down the neatly placed trees. I led the way while Morrison and Auburn walked side by side. Scheller and Tedder did the same. The trees were 20 feet apart, planted about a dozen feet from one another to allow for future growth. The grass had grown tall. It was just over knee height, making it feel as if you were wading through a grassy stream surrounded by a wall of neatly planted trees. The trees and the space between them continued uninterrupted for almost a quarter mile. 
In places, the pathway bent and weaved, but the tree placement stayed the same, and the trail never shrank. Soon we lost sight of our original position near the bear bags, and found ourselves surrounded by these large guardians of the path we were on. The sunlight from overhead grew dimmer as we went further and further into the swamp. The canopy became thicker as the trees had access to more abundant supplies of water and nutrients. Looking out through the trees, it looked like a thick, slightly moss-covered forest. Nothing too out of the ordinary. We had ventured nearly a half-mile when the trees and the pathway abruptly ended. I looked out into the woods, seeing if the trail was somehow cut off or destroyed, and started somewhere else, when straight lines caught my eye. Straight lines rarely ever occur in nature, and stand out when lying amongst the bent and twisted branches of a swamp. I saw the strange object in the depth of the swamp in front of us, and asked the others if they also saw it. We all pushed our way through the brush on the forest floor. The ground was soft and left our footprints in it, disfigured by leaves and debris. We approached the structure, seeing that it was indeed a wall, made of river stone and held together by a mortar made of clay and grass. As we came closer, we saw there was a second wall, adjacent to the first in an L shape. We were at a loss. Morrison suggested that we take a look around for some other sign of humans being there besides the obvious wall. Campfire ash, nails, or garbage, for example. We searched the area, but did not find any other sign of human interaction. There were two walls, made of river stone, with the same mortar of clay and grass. We searched for nearly 30 minutes before calling it quits and headed back towards the strange trail of trees. We walked back to camp unhindered. The way back was still just as clear as when we had traversed it less than an hour before. Morrison went into the equipment tent to analyze the water samples, while Auburn went to develop some data sheets for elevation that they had recorded. Scheller sat in front of a large table with small piles of dirt spread out in neat little boxes to begin looking at the makeup of the soils more closely. I proceeded to walk into the other GP tent to begin cooking dinner for everybody. Beef and vegetable kebabs with uh, seasoned rice was on the menu tonight. I checked the status of the solar array and the battery levels before beginning to cook. The power gathered today was more than enough to sustain our facilities overnight. We were in the middle of eating dinner when Auburn spoke up. He had some grand idea behind the walls. He said he had been to Gettysburg a few summers ago and saw walls all over the battlefields. He suggested that the walls that we saw were remnants from a Revolutionary War battle, as battles had been fought in the area during that time. Morrison argued that the walls of Gettysburg were just piles of rocks that farmers piled up on the edges of their fields over time. He also pointed out that the rock walls didn't have cement holding them together. Tedder interjected, asking if the walls we found could be some sort of marker then for the edge of a territory. Well, whose territory, we all asked. We didn't have an answer for that, but the theory did make some sense. The cement was there to prevent the stones from washing away when the swamp flooded. I remember Scheller asking the most important question. If we found these two walls in an L shape, were there three other sets of the walls in the swamp? 
I dropped the conversation, stating that I wanted to actually explore the swamp before making my decision. Morrison nodded and continued eating. The rest of us let the conversation drop, and we moved on to other topics. As night fell, we sat around a table. We had LED light bars illuminating the table above us, and we all played cards. Tedder had never played poker before, and we were attempting to show him how to play. As we did, he began winning more and more hands, until we were all out. It was nearly ten, and the sun had set nearly an hour ago. Morrison had just gone out for the dozenth time and stood up, stating that he hates playing with new people because they never know if what they have is good and they just win by dumb luck. He began walking towards the door of the tent. As he opened the tent flap and took a step out into the darkness, we all heard a noise from outside. It wasn't a sound that any of us had heard before. Over the droning noise of crickets, peepers, birds, and chirps of bats, there was another noise. It was quiet, but when you listened, you could hear it, like a hiss, almost like there was a small hole in an air compressor line. He whispered for us to come quickly and listen to what he was hearing. We all got up quickly from our chairs and walked outside. As we left, the sound increased in volume, coming from the direction of the swamp. I remember asking what the hell that noise was, and Auburn mumbled, fuck if I know. As we listened, the sound grew louder, drowning out the frogs and the birds, until all we could hear was that noise in our ears. Just as it started to become unbearable, it stopped, leaving an echo of the noise reverberating off everything around us. All of the animals had gone silent, leaving the group in a void of sound. We looked at each other, a few murmurs of, What the fuck was that? Scheller, in his uh, Joker self, suggested that it was swamp gas. Yeah, the uh, world's longest and loudest fart, Morrison quipped. The rest of us shut down all of the electronics that we could to conserve our power supplies and went to our tents for the night. I sat awake, staring at the ceiling, thinking about that summer on the river again, how I heard a noise similar to that and was never able to explain it. The next morning, I left my tent and walked towards the GP tent where I could hear voices. Opening the tent, I saw Auburn making pancakes again, and the smell of bacon hit me, causing my mouth to water. Scheller and Tedder were packing backpacks with snacks and bottles of water, and Morrison was looking at aerial photos of the swamp. No one seemed to pay much attention to my presence as I sat down. As Auburn began serving food, we began discussing our plans for the day. We would begin our trek at the stream Tedder and I were at yesterday. We would walk up and down the stream a few hundred yards to try and find a suitable pathway across. When one was found, we would cross and begin our journey around the swamp. Scheller was in charge of taking soil samples at areas he deemed adequate. Morrison and Tedder would be taking elevation readings. Auburn would be monitoring air quality for any strange anomalies. And I would be photographing areas of interest, as well as marking GPS coordinates for everybody regarding sample locations and other data that would need logged. Cameras, GPS, data sheets, laser levels, and tripods, as well as stadia rods, those uh, flat metal rods with numbers on them, would all be needed for this trip. And we would be hauling everything in on our backs for the entire day for like 12 hours. 
any food or garbage we brought in would need to be brought out as well. To preserve air quality reports, we would not be having any fires while outside of the camping area. Lunch was planned as sandwiches and chips brought in the backpack of Scheller, while Tedder packed MREs for dinner. Each of us would be carrying two gallons of water for the day as well. We ate breakfast, packed the equipment and the food, and began walking towards the stream. We found passage across the stream in the form of large rocks, downstream from our sample area the day before. Each of us crossed one at a time until the five of us made it across. Then we began walking. It wasn't hard to tell where the perimeter of the swamp was. Looking to our right let us see oak, maple, and the occasional pine tree, with many smaller bushes, branches, and debris littering the forest, spread out and easy to see through. To our left was a darker, shadowed area. The trees were larger, thicker, and had moss growing up their trunks. The area seemed to sink down a few feet, creating this giant misshapen bowl that seemed to hold all the water of the swamp within it. Tall tufts of grass jutted out in irregular patterns on what looked like solid ground, but would probably sink in a few inches when you stepped in it. Small, stagnant pools of water were scattered around as well. A green hue of algae grew within them. There was much more sound from the swamp's area as well. Bugs, birds, and frogs all made their sounds, while the forest on our right had the occasional bird or squirrel that made some noise. It had been a few hours since we crossed the stream. Scheller, Morrison, and Tedder had taken their respective samples a few times along the way. A break was decided upon, and we all sat on a large log. Nothing unusual had popped up in the elevation readings, air samples, or initial check into the soils that were taken throughout the morning. Scheller began pulling out our sandwiches and chips, and Morrison checked our GPS coordinates and began doing some math. He determined that we had walked about three and a quarter miles, and that put us on track to arrive just a few minutes after dark. If we could find that trail of trees again, we could potentially cut a half hour off the trek. I was curious if we were going to find any more of those stone walls, as I wanted to take some detailed pictures of them. Auburn mentioned that we knew at least where one set was, so even if we didn't find any more, we could grab pictures of the first set. We ate our sandwiches and proceeded on through the woods. Even at noon, when the sun was nearly as bright as it was going to get, we couldn't see more than a few dozen feet into the swamp. The brightness cast on everything that we could see on the outside of the swamp caused everything inside to become harder to see. Vague silhouettes and shapes of branches and leaves were all that could be seen. We must have walked another mile or two taking samples and readings every 15 minutes. The scenery stayed roughly the same, and I could feel that we were all becoming bored. There was nothing new or interesting that we were seeing. That's when Auburn spoke up. He was looking at his air meter, and he said it was reading low oxygen. He suggested that we keep moving to avoid the effects of oxygen deprivation or carbon monoxide poisoning. As we walked, he kept testing the air, and it continued to read as bad. Scheller stopped, looking into the darkness of the swamp. He craned his neck around to see better, and said that he might see another wall. He looked at Auburn, who looked at his meter, 
Auburn gave us five minutes to go in and look around. We stepped down into the slight incline towards the bottom of the swampy bowl. Boots sank into the mud and grass scratched against our pant legs. The darkness in front of us grew slightly more illuminated as our eyes adjusted to the dim light of the swamp. We heard frogs jump into the small bodies of water nearby as we walked close to them and bugs flew around, catching small bits of light off of their wings that streamed in past the leaves above. As we came closer, we saw that the wall wasn't the same as the first one. It was taller, almost four feet tall and two feet wide, stretching for roughly 25 feet before stopping. It was cleanly made, with no part damaged or collapsed by time. I snapped a few photos from different angles, making sure to get the detail of the clay mortar that held it together. Scheller, Tedder, and Morrison quickly looked around the area for anything that was out of place. Tedder called for us to come over to him, because he had found something. We walked towards him, looking at what he had found. It was a square-shaped ring of rocks, only a layer or two tall, but it was obviously put there for a reason. It seemed to be like a fire pit, but square. An odd shape for one. Auburn wiped his hands over the inside of the square ring, and we all heard the sound of metal hitting metal. Auburn reached down and pulled a few small iron nails out of the ring. Auburn took a look at his meter. Our five minutes were up. He took another reading and found that it came back as safe. He gave us the green light to continue looking around. We searched the area for about 15 minutes. Tedder found a piece of glass, with some flowers painted onto it, as if it were from an old china set. Morrison and Scheller found the remains of an old board. Just a fibery mass was all that was left after time had done its work to it. I took pictures of everything that was found, and we left the area, headed back up the incline and into the brighter, thinner forest outside. As we walked, I asked Morrison to pull out his GPS and look at where we were. I asked how it lined up in relation to the first set of walls that we had found. After a few seconds, he determined that the walls were nearly on opposite corners of the swamp. Someone, I'm uh, not sure who, made the comment that it seemed like a lot of land to claim. We continued to walk, not stopping for samples for about an hour, when we began hearing running water. I slowed down as the man in front and let the others catch up. It seemed as if we had found the inlet of the swamp. We walked a few more paces before we began to see the wide marshy area that was the inlet. The water didn't flow nicely out of one area like the outlet did. Instead, it spread out over hundreds of feet, causing a muddy mess of an area to cross. Cattails and other grassy plants grew in large mounds around the area creating a set of loose, wobbly areas that we could attempt to cross with. We all knew better than to attempt it with our equipment weighing us down, and we proceeded upstream of the inlet, looking for a narrower, more passable area. We found one, about a quarter mile upstream. The stream had narrowed to about 30 feet wide, and the water seemed to be a few feet deep. We spotted this crossing from a distance because it wasn't the natural rocks like the other one we crossed, but large circular pillars that had been carved by hand and placed in the water. The carved stone gave us easy access to cross the water, 
and I stepped up and took a few pictures of the rock pillars before crossing them without issue. The others followed. We stopped for dinner after crossing the stream. Morrison marked more data down on his map while Tedder pulled out an MRE. Jambalaya was the meal I was given, and in some way it kind of fit the thoughts I was having at the time. I'm sure there would be plenty of water to make the swamp feel and look like the bayous of Louisiana. We ate our meals in relative silence. Few words were mentioned about the pillars, and we didn't really care about how they arrived or who put them there. We were just thankful that they were there. Morrison calculated that we had roughly two and a half to three hours left for the day before arriving back at camp when we accounted for samples and elevation readings. The swamp became more foreboding as night began to fall upon us. We were still an hour away from camp when the sky began to stop changing colors and stars began to poke their way through the ever-darkening sky. The birds stopped chattering and the chirps of bats became the norm now. Bullfrogs and peepers had been sounding their calls for about an hour now, and every few minutes we would hear a splash from inside the now pitch-black swamp to our left. Light we would shine in was quickly stopped by hanging branches, brush, and leaves, giving us no gauge as to how far away the sounds were. As we were about twenty minutes from camp, we heard strange sounds from inside the swamp, not the regular animals that we were used to. Things that sounded like shouts from deep within the darkness. Hoots and hollers from far out of our sight. The wind had begun to pick up as a storm front was blowing into the area. A smell of rain began to permeate the air. Out of the blue, Morrison asked if we were hearing what he heard. Those screams and hollers? Yeah, they were probably just animals. Not that, Morrison said. He was hearing whispers. We all stopped walking at once and listened. Over the sound of the swamp, almost as if caused by the wind in the trees, were voices, faint, barely able to be heard, but they were there. Morrison said that he had had enough creepy shit for one day and decided to keep walking. We arrived at the camp, just as the first drops of rain were beginning to hit the ground and we all began unpacking and sorting the equipment as rain became a constant sound overhead on the tent. We all ran to our respective four-person tent and went inside with a very quick good night to everyone. I laid in my tent, thinking about the day, trying to come up with an answer about all the small bits of civilization that we had found. The walls, carved stone pillars, and whispers on the wind. I remembered I lived in an apartment situated at the bottom of a valley. When the marching band practiced at the school that was located near the top of the valley, you could hear the music drifting far down into the valley below. When football games were occurring, you could make out most of the words the announcers were saying on the loudspeakers at the stadium. Maybe what we heard was that. Words carried by loudspeakers from somewhere far, far away. The low clouds and wind from the storm helped direct the noise towards us. As I thought about these thoughts, I fell asleep. I awoke to the deafening sound of a downpour around the tent. The noise of rain was so loud I could barely hear myself when I moved, scraping against the nylon edges and rustling in my sleeping bag. I grabbed my watch and looked at it. 4.37. Well, at least I got a majority of a good night's sleep.
I laid awake, looking at the ceiling of my tent. A gray mass covered my vision, with a small dark square of netting at the center for holding things within it. I had that sensation when you look at something in the dark directly, and you can't see it, but when you look from the corner of your vision, you can see the thing manifest itself into your vision again. I had that with the stitching of the tent, appearing on the parts of the tent that I wasn't looking at. After a few minutes, the downpour began to lessen, and the pounding drops on my tent lining was bearable once again, allowing myself to try and fall asleep. I had my eyes closed, focusing on the white noise the rain was making, when I heard a squish. A footstep in the mud. Then another. Squish. Squish. It was getting louder, coming towards my tent. I sat up and looked out the side of the tent. The rainfly blocked all but the bottom of my view, where it fanned away from the tent, allowing me to only see a few feet around the outside of my tent. As the squishing got louder, I saw something cross my line of sight. I only noticed it as it crossed between my tent and Scheller's tent. I saw legs from just below the knee down, walking between our tents. The legs were only visible as dark shapes against the lighter-colored tent behind it. I couldn't tell if there were shoes on their feet as they walked. The squishing of the footsteps walked past our tents, towards the GP tents. I went back to sleep with some comfort that Scheller had probably just gone out into the clearing to take a piss after the downpour had ceased. I walked into the breakfast tent the next morning to the smell of eggs, toast, and bacon. Scheller was biting into a sandwich made of the three, and Morrison was just beginning to dip his toast into the yolk of his eggs, causing the yellow liquid to pour out all over the plate. I asked if anyone else had been woken up from the downpour. Scheller and Tedder had, saying that it was almost deafening. I asked if anyone was out to use the bathroom just when it began. They shook their heads, and I went on to explain that I had definitely saw and heard someone walk between my tent and Scheller's tent. The others obviously didn't believe me, as someone would have had to have been crazy to go out into the storm. Scheller spoke up, though saying that he heard someone walking too, and thought it was just one of us coming back from taking a piss. I suggested we go look. If no one's going to admit they were out, there should be some sort of footprints left in the mud around the tent. I led the way to the area between our tents. Amongst the drooping, rain-covered tall grass were footprints. Parts of the grass pressed into the mud as the shape of a bare foot was clearly visible. Everyone else looked, seeing the barefoot tracks between our tents, leading from further away in the clearing towards the swamp. Tedder and Auburn thought that Scheller and I were messing with everyone. We checked both GP tents, making sure that no one had disturbed anything inside of them, other than our breakfast this morning. We made our way back to the meal tent and sat down, determination set in to figure something out. Someone asked if we had trail cameras to spot the person who came through. We did, in fact, have some trail cameras that we were going to use to observe animal movement patterns. Morrison looked at me with a very stone-cold face and asked me if we had any weapons. I smiled and walked to one of the trucks and pulled a small case out from under the passenger seat. Both trucks had a survival rifle in them. 
they were packed to be used for emergencies only. Both rifles had two barrels, one in 9mm and one for a 410 shotgun shell. They came in two parts, the barrel and trigger assembly, and the stock. You needed both parts to fire the gun. It kind of snapped together like a double-barreled shotgun does, allowing you to load one round of each ammo. There were two triggers, one for each barrel. The ammo was stored in the stock of the gun, which pulled up on the top. You could hold five rounds of each ammo. The others seemed to be put at ease with this new information. We were armed now. Morrison called us into the breakfast tent after we were all dressed. The two guns were held by Morrison and myself, as we had the most experience. We knew that there was someone out there, and if they were in the swamp, we didn't want to scare them with the guns. Morrison told us that if you have the gun, keep it down, but keep it ready, just in case. We changed our schedule. Rather than going into the swamp on foot, we decided to take the boat in, because it would be damn hard for someone to catch us in the water. Morrison directed us, and we did as we were told. Tedder, Scheller, and I backed the van and trailer back up to the stream and lowered the boat into it slowly, anchoring it against the bank before taking the vehicle back to camp. We loaded food for the day into bags, grabbed some basic air testing equipment, cameras, and spotlights for the boat. We departed for the inside of the swamp around nine, prepared to do a quick drive around the swamp to see if we could find any sign of a person having lived there. The difference of the swamp was instantly apparent to us as we began our trip. The water was much more dirty and flowing faster than yesterday. Rain from the storm overnight had added many, many tons of water to the flow of the swamp. The morning sunlight was still trying to break through the clouds that remained from the storm, and a light misty fog rolled a few feet off the ground, making it hard to see the waterway in front of us as we began heading upstream. Our boat wasn't overly large, made of aluminum and boxy-shaped. The boat had just enough room for five people, even though it was probably intended for three. There was a seat to control the motor where Morrison drove. Tedder and I sat in the front, while Scheller and Auburn sat on the sides near the back. Morrison kept the boat at a slow pace, fast enough that it was better than walking, but slow enough that we wouldn't be stranded if we ran aground. The trees of the swamp began to darken the sky around us. The leaves grew thicker, and we began to notice the trees becoming further apart, water separating them as they rose high into the darkness of the canopy. Spanish moss hung on many branches, waving gently in the breeze that cut through the towering giants around us. We shined the spotlights around, trying to see anything out of the ordinary. Frogs jumped into the water as we shined the light on them. Ripples from fish swimming just under the surface were visible only for a few seconds before the flow of water caused them to blend into nothingness. It was nearly a half an hour before we saw anything worth noting. We had driven around a large section of the eastern side of the swamp, according to the GPS, before we started pressing towards the middle. As we began to do so, Auburn spotted something with his spotlight. He called back to Morrison to slow down and pull us into the nearest landmass to walk. We looked to where his light was shining. In the beam of the spotlight was the shape of a person, 
lying down, and, and it seemed like they had been broken into multiple pieces. We brought the boat up onto the shore, only a few inches, enough that we could drive off without issue if we encountered a person within the swamp. Morrison, armed with one of the survival rifles, stayed with the boat, ready to give us a speedy retreat if needed. We walked towards the figure. Auburn's light never stopped shining on the thing. As we approached, we began seeing details of the person lying there. It was the statue of a skinny, long-limbed person with a large nose and rounded face. It was made of a strange cement and had large strips of what looked like woven cloth draped around its arms and back. Looking to the right was a pedestal where it had fallen from its perch. The statue had broken into multiple pieces, a leg and arm had come off, and the head had a crack down the side of it, threatening to split it in two. Moss had begun to grow on the figure. Leaves and dirt were tucked into crevices on all parts of this thing. We shined light onto the pedestal it was once standing on, a small round rock that was flattened on the top. Part of one foot still stayed in its proper place. I photographed the remains of the statue and its pedestal and began looking around for more proof that something was once here. We found charcoal left over from an ancient fire near the base of the pedestal. Theories began flying again. Was this a religious thing, some strange totem, or a marker? The coals of the fire were old and had definitely been there for a very long time. Our search was interrupted by a shout. Morrison shouted from the boat. We shined our light around, making sure there was nothing near us, and saw nothing. The four of us began quickly walking back towards Morrison. Seeing his spotlight move around the boat frantically, looking down at the water. As we got closer, we saw that he had the gun shouldered and was pointing it at the water. He yelled that there was something in the water, and he kept looking around it. The spotlight shone only an inch or two into the water before it was dispersed by the murkiness. Morrison was nearly knocked off the boat as something bumped it, causing it to lift a few inches and fall. He made his way back to the seat to drive as we began moving towards the boat to load onto it and leave. As Tedder was raising his leg to get onto the boat, the entire thing lurched backwards into the water, pulling him down and causing him to fall, half in the shallow water and half on shore. He scrambled to stand up as Auburn shined the light at the boat. Morrison's face reflected something of terror and the knowledge that he had to do something quick. He shouted that we should wait and he would be back and sped off quickly into the shadows. As he did so, Auburn's light caught a glimpse of something within the wake of the boat. A large shadow of some creature just under the murky waters. It moved quickly through the water without a single noise to be heard. The only way we knew where it was was by the ripples that it gave off as it moved beneath the surface, headed towards the fading sound of the engine. We all looked at the water and recoiled from it, stepping back until we were nearly ten feet from the edge of the lightly lapping waters. The boat engine became louder as Morrison navigated back to our position. Auburn shined his light back and forth, trying to get his attention so that he could come pick us up. We saw the boat go speeding past a large opening in the water, locked at full speed. As it crossed the spotlight's beam, we didn't see Morrison on board. 
The boat collided with the side of a tree, flipping sideways and skipping on its side, still carried by the speed it had before coming to a stop and tipping upside down. The hull was dented and torn in places. No sign of Morrison could be seen. We shouted for Morrison for nearly an hour, walking along the bank of the waterway and near the statue. We never heard a response. We walked to where the statue was lying and sat in a small circle. The spotlight sat straight up, illuminating all of us. We had a discussion. Morrison was gone, and we had to focus on ourselves. Tedder had grabbed a box of 9mm ammo, so we had 30 rounds of 9mm and 5 rounds of shotgun ammo. We began going through the basic steps of survival. First was first aid. No one was hurt out of our group. Second was shelter and fire. The canopy gave us some protection, and it would suffice until later tonight. Auburn had a lighter that he liked to fidget with that he kept in his pocket from his smoking days. Third on the list was signaling. The chances of getting a smoke signal out would be nearly impossible, the chance even slimmer that someone would see it. Fourth was water. We had a few gallons of water between us, and we had two life straw filters, so we had a continuous source of water. Fifth was food, which we had enough for between Scheller and Tedder's backpacks. Our objectives were simple. Move through the swamp. As it became dark, find a place to build a shelter, then create a fire, wake up, and get out. Scheller was still worried and asked if we could give Morrison some sort of sign to where we were going, in case he was okay and showed up where the statue was. I pulled a piece of paper from my notebook and wrote a note that said we were headed south and would have a fire. I placed it on the statue and put a small piece of the cement on top of it. I looked at Scheller and he nodded, agreeing that this would suffice. The good of the many outweighs the good of the few. Scheller understood this as an outdoorsman, and I think the rest of us did as well. We had to think about ourselves as a group first, before putting ourselves at risk to find Morrison. The swamp was more sinister now. The knowledge that something was in the water that could easily move a 1,500-pound bass boat was terrifying, as the water was all around us. We had small land masses that we could walk to, navigating through the swamp slowly. We walked south for about 15 minutes before we stumbled across the bridge. A bridge made from wooden slats with a rope holding it up above the water. It seemed to be in good condition as the wood had not rotted and not a single slat was missing. One of us mentioned that this would be a prime location for something to jump out of the water and get us. We crossed the bridge one at a time. It wobbled side to side as each of us crossed dropping fibers of rope and bits of dirt from our boots into the water a few feet below. Once we were all across, I took a picture of the bridge for our records and continued on. Tedder called out that he saw something. We had been walking for nearly 45 minutes at this point and had begun to discuss when we would be stopping. We looked at where Tedder was looking, and there, sat amongst the mossy trunks of trees and dangling limbs of wood, was a structure, an actual building. It was elevated, roughly eight feet above the ground on stilts, 
with a broken wooden staircase sitting in the water below it. As we approached, we saw that the building was missing a large portion of the roof, and it had what seemed to be a fireplace in it, judging by the cement pillar that was hanging on the side. The shack reminded me of something from a horror movie, where the axe murderer lives, and the people that he's hunting go there for shelter. The murderer comes home and finds all of his victims encroaching on his land, right in his own home. That's when he chops them up into little pieces and eats them. We were only feet from the structure. We looked up at it. The old wood boards that ran along the outside of the building, forming a porch, seemed to be in decent shape. This is the part where everyone in the audience is yelling, Don't go in there, you idiots! We saw that the stairs had not been on the structure for a long time, and parts of the structure seemed left to rot. We looked around for a ladder to get up and found none. Auburn suggested that we build a ladder and look around. If we find signs of someone living there, then we get the hell out of Dodge. Everyone thought that this was acceptable. We found straight branches from the ground, and thin stringy vines from the trees, and created a makeshift ladder. Placing it against the edge of the porch, we were able to climb up with ease. Pulling the ladder up behind us, leaving no easy entry for anyone after us. There were two windows, one on each side wall, and none on the front or the back walls of the structure. We peered into the window closest to us with the spotlight, trying to see if someone had been here recently. Old leaves and moss sat under the section of the broken roof. The building seemed relatively empty. The remains of an old wooden chair that had been broken sat in the corner, and the fireplace sat prominently against the back wall opposite of the door. We cracked open the door and looked inside. An old stained mattress sat against the wall next to the doorway, cotton and fiber coming out of the holes and cuts within the old bed. There were stains on it that looked like blood, dark and brown, with just a hint of orange rust-looking color behind it. There was a wash basin, as well as some cupboards and a countertop, around the window that we had looked into, presumably a kitchen area. On the counter was an old rusted knife, blade long dulled by time and dampness, useless to anyone but a scrapyard. It seemed like no one had lived here in quite a while. We agreed this would work for shelter tonight, and went about finding and gathering firewood. The task of collecting firewood was much harder than we expected as the storm the previous night had dampened almost all of the wood within the swamp. The water within the swamp was definitely beginning to rise, as the groundwater flowed silently into the basin that was the swamp. The land that we had approached from had nearly lost a foot due to the water rising. We had been collecting firewood and preparing for the night for nearly two hours at this point. It was when we were opening our MREs and about to begin eating when we heard a deep voice from outside shouting for us. It was Morrison. We got up and ran onto the porch, looking towards where the shouting was coming from. We saw a beam of light flash through the trees in the distance before hearing his footsteps come towards us. Stepping out of the darkness with a spotlight in one hand and a survival rifle in the other was Morrison. His clothes were wet and stained from the murky water, 
and he had a large cut on his cheek. Questions began to fly as soon as we saw him step out of the darkness. He said that he had floored the boat and knew that the creature was faster because it had easily caught up to him. So he locked the boat's acceleration, grabbed the gun, backpack, and spotlight, and jumped off towards the shore, seeing the large thing chase after the boat just under the water. He swam to shore and began shouting for us. None of us heard him, and he never heard us. He began moving towards where we had last been. He found the note and began heading south, eventually smelling the smoke and finding the shack. We closed the wound on his cheek, and we ate the food that we had set out for the night, with plans of leaving this godforsaken place in the morning. We slept, huddled together for warmth near the fire, as the temperature within the swamp dropped. The shack provided just enough protection from the elements as we slept. One of us stood on guard duty for a few hours, listening for any strange noises or for the person that had been at camp. During my shift, I sat on the floor of the porch, listening to the water lap against the stilts, the bugs of the swamp around the shack, and the occasional bird call. I was about to head in when I saw a light in the swamp, an orange flickering glow that reminded me of a torch from movies. It came within a few hundred feet of the shack, enough that I can confirm that it was a torch carried by someone that was very tall. Their outline and features were obscured by distance as I tried to look with any more detail. I pulled out my camera and snapped a few pictures as I moved, never getting one that gave me any more information about the person carrying the torch. I woke the others as the light had gone away and told them what I had seen. As they were starting to stir, I heard a large branch break outside. We all froze, the crackling of the fire the only noise that we heard. Then the rustle of leaves and another crack. We all began moving at once, grabbing our gear, the guns and the spotlights, and ran out onto the porch. Morrison and I stood with the guns, ready to fire. Two others pointed spotlights towards the sounds when we heard them. The snap of a twig and the pointing of spotlights only yielded glimpses at a person that was in the darkness. We saw their backs stuck behind a tree as they walked between them or a glimpse of their head popped back in as they hid themselves. There were minutes between sounds and sightings, and it came to a point where we knew there had to be more than one person out there, due to the location of the sounds and how quickly they occurred at times. Finally, Morrison was able to fire off a shot at one. The loud crack of a gun echoed, deafening me as I held the other gun with both hands. The others had covered their ears already. I saw Morrison snap the gun barrel down, pulling out the casing of the 9mm round and placing a new one in before snapping the barrel shut again. After the gun had been fired, the sounds stopped. At least I assumed they did, because I could only hear ringing in my ears for the next ten minutes, but nobody snapped to an area like they had heard a sound. As my hearing came back to me, we decided to leave the shack, dropping the ladder down and climbing onto the ground which had an extra inch or two of water added to the water level as they continued rising overnight. We stumbled through the swamp for nearly an hour before a thick fog rolled in. A blinding fog that the spotlight only made worse. Auburn kept the spotlight on and partially covered, 
giving us a glimpse at the swamp floor below us as we walked. We felt lost. All sense of direction and distance was gone as fog obscured everything in our sight. We heard a noise to our right, a splash of water and a strange groan. Everyone but Morrison froze. He turned and continued walking towards the sound, quickly disappearing out of our sight. We stumbled forward, shouting for him and calling out his name. We never heard a gunshot, shout, or scream from Morrison, or another sound from whatever made the splash and the groan. We were all beginning to freak out. Morrison was now gone without a trace, and the fog was still blinding us. We continued walking. You could feel the palpable fear between the four of us, scared that one of us may go missing next. The fog finally dissipated, and we shouted for Morrison again, to no response. He was gone, for good this time. We took a break from walking to sit down. If Morrison were still around, maybe he could catch up to us. We drank some water and ate leftover crackers from the MREs of last night while we waited. As the fog fully lifted, we finished our snacks and began to see the swamp around us again. We began to get our bearings, and in the distance, we saw the shack, only a few hundred yards away. We were devastated. Morrison was missing again, and we were back at square one. You could feel the panic rising as we came to the realization that we had wasted so much time and had lost one of our friends. We shouted for Morrison one last time before deciding to leave. Our voices echoed in the darkness as we waited for some semblance of a response. Once again, we heard nothing. The swamp seemed darker still, as if the canopy above had closed in a bit more, leaving us in an even darker shadow. Looking up, I saw the leaves, illuminated with the morning sun on the other side, blocking the outside world from coming through. It felt distant, but I knew we could make it out. I looked at the others, and they silently agreed that it was time to go. As we stood up, Tedder fell to his knees. We turned and looked at him, and saw that his foot was caught in a tangle of vines. Scheller pulled out a pocket knife to begin cutting at the vines. As he got within reach, Tedder began to scream. The vines. I don't know how they did, but they moved, slithering up to just below his knee tightening their grip on him and pulling his legs out from under him violently. He began sliding in the dirt, away from us. Scheller grabbed his arms, trying to pull him, but Scheller fell down as well. Tedder was dragged nearly fifty feet from where we had sat, pulled against his will slowly, taking minutes to arrive before we finally realized his fate. Auburn shined his light, looking for a source to the vines, when the light hit the water and we could see the vines leading into it, only feet away at this point. We beat on the vines with branches, shot at them with the gun, and did all we could to break him free as his feet were pulled into the water. He screamed, knowing that he was about to die a much more painful death than we had witnessed with Morrison. He pleaded for us to help him do anything we could do, but we already had. The vines couldn't be seen now as they pulled Tedder's feet under the water. As his back began to be covered, his eyes looked at the gun and then at me as he screamed out, Just fucking shoot me! 
I couldn't do it. We watched as he was engulfed by the water. His descent into the murky filth seemed to be slowed, as if the swamp was just toying with us. Water filled his mouth, and air bubbles came out quickly. We watched as his breath became more sporadic and further apart, until there was just calm waters again. We just sat, the water lapping gently at the edge of the soil for I don't know how long before we stood up and began walking in the opposite direction, south, away from the center of the swamp, away from the shack, and away from the memory of our lost friends. Land had become scarce in a few areas, causing us to leap over small streams, and the water continued to rise. You could see bits of branches, leaves, and dirt being swept towards the outlet with the flow of water. The flow of the water. The outlet. Next to camp. At least it was easy to tell which direction we needed to go. We found another bridge. This one was older. The rope had been colored a muddy brown and had moss growing between the fibers, tinting it a dark green in places. The wooden boards were ragged, the grain of the wood beginning to show as parts had eroded away with time. The water seemed to reach for the bottom of the boards, lapping and barely touching them with the highest ripples. We crossed the bridge, quickly, one at a time, attempting to spend as little time on the bridge as possible. As we crossed, our weight dropped the middle of the bridge a few inches into the water, and the ropes made a strained sound as the fibers tightened and fought to hold us up. We all ran across the remainder of the bridge when our feet touched the water, trying to just avoid it as much as possible. I don't know how to explain it, but time flows differently in the swamp. We had only walked what felt like a few hours before we began noticing that the light from the canopy was beginning to dim. Darkness would soon envelop the swamp, and we would be helpless without some form of shelter or defense. We walked until we found a rounded mass of land that was slightly higher than the others around it, with one path of land onto it. It seemed like the place to go for an easy-to-defend location. The things lurking in the dark could only come from one direction. We built a large fire in the center of our defendable position to keep warm. The fire was larger than it needed to be, but we wanted that security of the firelight surrounding us. We also put two smaller fires near the entrance of our defendable land bridge to illuminate anything that could attempt to cross it. We cleared branches, debris, and small vines from the land bridge to give us a clear view across to the other side. We ate some of the snacks that Scheller had packed for us and finished the water that we had left. We didn't sleep much that night. All three of us sat near the fire, with our backs to it, watching the land bridge and two other directions around us. We heard the hoots and the hollers of animals that we had heard before, the chirping of insects and the croaking of frogs, and the rustling of the trees as the wind blew gently through them. Auburn whispered, asking if we heard something. We hadn't heard anything. He said he was hearing whispers, like we had coming back from the first wall that we found. We continued to listen, hearing nothing that could have been a whisper over the sound of the swamp. 
we asked if it was saying anything, and he said that it was saying his name, and other things like we would never leave this place. Fear was palpable in his voice as it began to tremble, and he started to cry softly. We heard a loud thud on the other side of the Lambridge, cutting our conversation short. We looked at the area on the other side of the fires, seeing dirt and light vegetation, but nothing abnormal stood out to us. Scheller took a step towards the land bridge. He stopped, looked at me, and the face that I gave him said, You know damn well that's a trap. You better not go over there. And he sat back down. We just sat in silence, the crackling of the fire a constant in our ears. We heard more thuds from the other side of the land bridge, but soon stopped paying attention to any of them. We also heard more strange noises from around our fires. Sounds like someone was in pain, moaning to give us their location for us to help. A hoot like an owl, but much more guttural. I even thought that we heard the roars of something much larger than anything we had seen so far. At some point, I dozed off. Auburn and Scheller may have done the same, but I have no way of knowing. I woke up to Auburn shaking me. I jolted awake, my hands on the rifle, and I looked around. Dawn had come, and the light of the sun had just barely brightened the area under the canopy. Taking in my surroundings, it took me a moment to realize that Scheller and Auburn were motioning for me to look across the land bridge. I squinted, rubbing my eyes to try and focus on something so distant so quickly. I saw someone standing in the small clearing that we had made. They looked human. They were crouched, with their back to us at the edge of the clearing. They seemed to be still, not moving, not even breathing. The person wore clothes that seemed to be woven out of reeds and moss. We stared at them for a few minutes before they stood up and began walking into the darkness of the swamp again. We went over what we knew about this person. There was one of them. They didn't seem to have any weapons, and it seemed like they were just trying to survive like we were. Of course, it was brought up that they had left and were in our camp. Why wouldn't they just leave the swamp if they could walk out like that? We also knew that we outnumbered them three to one. And we had a gun, so we could probably take them in a fight if we needed to. Mentioning a fight, Auburn walked over to a tree that he had been laying against for most of the night. He pulled out two sharp sticks with blackened tips, hardened in the fire. He had made them as Scheller and I slept. A spear wasn't much, but at least we all had some sort of weapon now. We began our trek off our small, isolated piece of dirt. As we exited, we saw that the water had gone down by an inch or so. We hoped that that would mean there would be more land to walk across, less places for things to hide under the water. We kept walking south. The person we saw headed east. For how long, we weren't sure. But we were happy that we were headed in a sort of different direction than them. The three of us traveled, swatting at bugs that came near us and stopping and listening when we heard a noise that was out of place or when we just had a strange feeling that something was off. It slowed us down, but we wanted to be safe rather than sorry. I was the one that spotted it, 
another structure in the swamp. This one was a small shack built out of hewn logs from what seemed to be the trees of the swamp, which left a small clearing around this structure. The clearing was void of trees, but the canopy above still stood from the others around it. The structure was on stilts a few feet above the water. Its roof and stairs were intact. It had a clay chimney, not as nice as the one in the shack we had stayed in. There was smoke coming out of the chimney, a light gray mist that rose into the leaves of the trees above and disappeared. We walked inside of the brush on the edge of the clearing, trying not to be seen by anyone inside the cabin. As we made our way around the clearing, we saw that there was a foot trail that led further away from the cabin. We followed it, moving faster now that we had a trail to follow without the obstacles of the swamp in our way. We made great time, moving quickly until we saw another small clearing ahead. We slowed down, walking into it slowly. Statues, two of them, standing on pedestals like the one we had found before. Two other pedestals stood in this clearing as well, empty. The flattened tops of the pedestal rubbed smooth, awaiting for a statue to be placed upon it. We stared at the statues for longer than we should have. They had this eerie aura around them, one that drew you in to look at their every detail. The crude cement they were carved from, paired with the weathering of age within the swamp, gave them a strange, weathered, smooth texture that made it appear almost like aged skin. Their lifeless eyes, just flat, slightly rounded areas on either side of a semi-large nose. The expression they had was one that invoked many feelings. At first, it looked like a person deep in meditative thought, staring at something and pondering. Then I thought that it could be a sadness, a deep longing for something more. Then, as I continued looking, I saw something else. Hopelessness, maybe? These statues all seemed to be of the same person. The fallen statue that we had found before matching this appearance as well. The statues that we saw now were much better preserved than the fallen one. Moss had been kept off them, and they each had leather clothes stitched onto them, not ragged moss or reed clothing. My thoughts of what emotions the statues evoked was broken by the sound of a sob. Looking over, I saw Auburn beginning to cry. Scheller walked up to him and touched his shoulder, asking him what was wrong. He said that he was hearing the voices again, and that they grew louder the longer that we stopped moving. Then let's keep moving. How's that sound? Scheller suggested. Auburn nodded, and we all began walking again, into the brush as the trail had ended at the clearing of statues. Navigating through branches and debris, we pushed through, going around small bodies of water and past flowing streams, still murky, hiding potential pitfalls. We stopped on the edge of a large stream that flowed between two masses of land, with no way to cross it. Looking in both directions, it seemed as we had reached the end of our travel on this land, and we would need to cross the area by swimming. We debated who would cross the stream of certain death first. We decided, in a two-to-one vote, that I would go first, because I had the gun and could defend myself better than they could. They would stay on the other side until I crossed, 
and I would cover them with the gun as they crossed. I took a step towards the flowing water. The shore that we were on reminded me of the shore that Tedder was dragged across before his death. I breathed deeply and took a step into the cold water, and then another, and another, until I was nearly thigh-deep into it. I held the gun slightly above my shoulders as I walked, until I was submerged to the bottom of my ribcage. The ground under the water was solid, not sandy or silty like I had expected. It also wasn't muddy or hard to walk through. I walked across slowly, slipping on a few river stones and tripping slightly on some that were standing higher than others, until the water level lowered and I began coming up and was safely on the other side. I turned around and looked back at the others and motioned for them to come across. As they crossed, I made sure that nothing snuck up on them from behind, and also occasionally glanced behind myself as well, making sure that the person we had saw hadn't been stalking us. After about a minute, Scheller and Auburn stood beside me on the shore, their clothes soaked like mine, and stained a slight gritty, greenish-brown like Morrison's had been. We were about to begin walking again when Auburn screamed. It wasn't a scream of pain or of fear, but of necessity. Scheller and I both quickly turned towards him, and I saw him holding his head, his knuckles white from the pressure he was putting onto it. He was mumbling something and smacked his head a few times. He stopped then, tears streaming down his face, snot running out of one nostril and into his mouth over his top lip. He smiled slightly, a smile of acceptance, and began running, running faster than we had ever moved through the swamp before. Scheller and I took off after him, trying to keep up. It seemed like Auburn was moving faster than was humanly possible. I recall Auburn swatting branches out of the way, and they swung back and hit me, causing me to lose sight of him for only a second, but when I pushed them out of the way, he was almost out of my sight. Further than the fastest person I knew could have run in that half second. Scheller and I still tried, though, running through the swamp, trying to find Auburn as he became further and further away from us. Eventually, we stopped hearing the sound of his stampeding through the woods and were bathed in the natural sound of the bugs and water again. We tried to find some sort of trail of broken branches, footprints, or any other sign that Auburn may have traveled through, but we never found a sign of him. That was until we encountered what I call the Oasis. The two of us had been walking for nearly 20 minutes in the direction that Auburn had run when we came across a strange body of water. It was the picture of perfection, a circle, a perfect circle, about a hundred feet across at its widest point. The trees had not grown in this water, and a canopy did not envelop the area around it. Light shined into this water, showing us the absolute crystal clarity of the water. This pond must have been a couple dozen feet deep, but we could see straight to the bottom without issue. We stared at it, dumbfounded as to how this water was so clear when everything else was dirty and turbid. We saw something on one side of the pond, 
about three-quarters down. If the sun hadn't glinted off of it, we probably wouldn't have noticed. Auburn sat in a frozen pose, arms reaching up towards us, legs dangling uselessly below him, his clothes flowing weightlessly on his body, his face a twisted scream of pain and sadness. We heard a splash then from across the water. Scheller and I both looked up towards the source of the noise and saw someone and saw someone had come to the water and was kneeling, drinking from it. We backed up slowly, back into the brush and away from the shore. As we did so, the person continued drinking, reaching their arms deep into the water, pulling it towards them. They were pale, green-tinted and dirty. Mud floated off of this person into the water, ruining its perfection. We stopped moving, hiding behind a large tree, and watched the person. They seemed to be bathing now, washing their arms, sitting down, washing their legs, and splashing water on their face. We began seeing more details of them. The person looked like who the statues had been representing, a perfect replica of the statues. Maybe they were self-portraits? The man stood up after they were done with their bath and began walking around the pond towards us. We sat motionless, not daring to make a noise. The tall man headed up the bank, away from the shore, only a few feet from where we had backed into the brush. I straightened myself, pulling the gun to my shoulder, and braced myself against the trunk of the tree, waiting for this person to step out. As they got closer, the sound of their footsteps and brush being pushed aside became louder, and under all of that was another sound. A sound like two rocks being scraped together. The man came into our sight, nearly six and a half feet tall, covered in leather and reed clothing, only a few feet from us. Once I had a clear shot, I took it, pulling the trigger and firing a nine-millimeter round from the gun into the side of the man's head. The force of the bullet knocked him sideways slightly as he fell forward, landing with a quiet crashing and thud as shrapnel peppered Scheller and I in the area around us. What the fuck was that? Scheller shouted. Why are we killing people now? Survival of the fittest, I whispered, my voice shaking as badly as my hands as I struggled to reload the shot. I'm not taking any more chances. I mean, I get it, but he never would have saw us if we just... We heard a noise from where the man fell. A huff of breath as branches and debris shifted. We both watched in horror and awe as the man stood up, rising out of the brush. Half of the man's jaw was missing. The majority of his cheek and ear were gone, replaced by a jagged, uneven, and random arrangement of cement that had broken off from my bullet. He stood, felt what was left of his face, and turned towards us, the lifeless eyes of the statue staring us down. Uh, dude, fucking shoot. Like now, Scheller said, bumping me and bringing me to my senses. My ears were still ringing from the previous shot. I raised the gun again and fired. Sound ceased to exist as the gun fired another round into the statue's chest, causing chips and bits of cement to go flying as they collided. Scheller and I ran, back towards the water and past Auburn's corpse. We looked back, 
seeing the statue step out onto the shore of the pond and slide, the loose soil around it giving way under the weight of the statue's cement. It slid into the water, where it fell in, sinking quickly as it was far too heavy to swim. Well, that was anticlimactic, I stated blankly, looking at Scheller, who had a grin on his face. I guess the killer statue has a bad day every once in a while, too, he said, realizing the absurdity of the sentence he had just said. We had to be close to the edge of the swamp. My ears were still ringing, the sound of the swamp gone, and replaced with the scream of deafness as we ran through the brush. We were moving a bit faster now, at a jogging pace as we had been filled with adrenaline by the encounter. We pushed ourselves much harder than we had ever done before. We were bruised, cut, and beaten by branches, thorns, and twigs. Eventually we made it to the delta that we had entered the swamp by. The water was higher than when we had entered, and we were so close, so close, but so far away, as the moving water and the deposits of silt and mud were the most here. The water was too shallow to swim, yet the mud was too deep to walk across. We jogged along the shore, feeling cornered, trying to get closer to camp, looking for a way across. We eventually found what seemed to be an old waterway, one that only flowed when the water was very high. It seemed huge, nearly 500 feet to the clearing on the other side. The ground of the stream bed was muddy from the high water levels the past few days, but had no water going through it currently. If getting dirty and walking through some sticky mud meant escaping this hell and getting to safety, we would take it. We walked down the steep incline towards the edge of the swamp. This stream bed, our last obstacle. Scheller led the way, poking the spear into the mud to find the most stable areas. We found quickly that there was a layer of rock only an inch or two below the mud, giving us no real struggle when we walked. I followed in Scheller's footsteps, the mud sucking to his boots with wet slurping noises. We had pushed through the muddy stream bed, making it over three-quarters of the way to the other side. Scheller had begun moving quickly, throwing caution to the wind as he walked across the stream bed. I was directly behind him, gleeful to be leaving this nightmare. He took another step forward and sank in, halfway to his calf. He looked around surprised. Had the rocks ended and the mud just become deeper? He struggled to pull his leg out, and he sank again, to just over his knee. He began to panic now. I grabbed under his arms and gave him reassurance that I had him. Scheller grabbed the spear, poking down into the mud hitting rocks only a few inches down. He was then pulled again, to slightly above his waist. He shouted, fear overcoming him. He yelled that he could feel something under the mud moving, wrapping around him. He pleaded with me to find something to help him with. I looked around, seeing nothing along the stream bed that could help us. I pulled on his arms, but he wasn't budging. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I kept saying over and over, my voice cracking as I began to cry. I fell back onto the muddy ground behind me, watching my friend be swallowed alive by the ground. Scheller screamed out in pain as he was pulled down until the mud covered his chest. He pushed his hands down into the mud and tried to pull himself up with the support of the rocks, but it seemed like a useless endeavor. 
he reached for the spear again. When he was pulled under until his forearms were only visible, the spear in his hands. They were frantically feeling the spear, trying to get a grip when they too were pulled under, the spear snapping in half as it hit the mud and was partially pulled under, two parts of the spear sticking out in different directions. Scheller was gone. I rolled over, crawling to the spot where he had just gone under, and found nothing but river stones a few inches under the mud as I dug with my hands. I walked the rest of the way across the stream bed without caution. I didn't care if I was swallowed up by the mud, or pulled away by vines, or eaten by some water monster. Everyone else was dead or missing, and I was okay with joining them, as living with the torment of these events on my mind would haunt me until I died. I wasn't taken. I wasn't pulled back, or eaten, or swallowed up. I walked across the mud without issue, and walked up the edge of the swamp until I entered the clearing. I ran to camp. Solar arrays still running. I looked at the equipment tent, seeing lights and buttons illuminated with power. Nothing out of place. I ran to the food tent, grabbed water and the small metal lockbox that held our vehicle keys. I entered the code and with a satisfying click, the box unlatched, allowing me to grab a set of keys. I ran out of the GP tent and looked around the camp. It seemed so normal, nothing out of place, but only a few hundred yards away. There were so many horrors to be found. I scanned the edge of the clearing and saw the man standing, his face half missing. I could clearly see that from where I was standing. He stood just outside of the swamp, in my view. Then, as I looked longer, I saw others, just slightly obscured by the brush, standing perfectly still, statue-like, unmoving. I ran to the truck, inserting the key and starting the engine. I got out and ran to the trailer, taking the time to unhook it and escape that much faster. I turned to look at the figures again, and they were gone. The rumbling of the truck's engine was the only constant sound now as I finished unlatching the trailer. I jumped into the driver's seat, already stained from my muddy arms and body hitting the side of the seat. Mud stained everything that I touched inside of the truck a dirty reminder that a portion of the swamp was still with me. I put the truck in gear and drove, turning until I found the way that we had come in, the overgrown trail that we had just come through only days earlier. I drove until I encountered the metal gate, and I drove through that, knocking it over as it had already been rusted badly. I hit the road and accelerated, dust and stones being thrown as I sped down the dirt road. I hit the edge of the pavement with a hard bump and began moving faster, 50, 60, 70 miles an hour, until I saw the mobile home rise over the hill in front of me. I sped past it until the houses became closer, more numerous, not surrounded by overgrowth. Eventually, I saw someone standing on a sidewalk. It must have been quite a scene, a large black truck speeding down the road in a quiet rural town crashing into the curb as it skidded to a stop, scaring the only person in sight. Neighbors opened their doors to see what the commotion was and watched me open my door, nearly falling out of the truck, covered in mud, cuts and bruises, and crying for help. The ambulance arrived shortly after. I was cleaned up 
and given stitches for a few of the more serious cuts that I had sustained. The police were obviously called after the scene I had made and followed me to the hospital. Using my phone, they found my emergency contacts and called my fiancé and parents to let them know where I was. They would be arriving later that day. I was severely dehydrated and hadn't eaten in a few days. The police gave me a day to recover, not allowing my parents or fiancé to be let in until I had talked with detectives. I slept for almost 12 hours, being awoken every few hours for a check-in and asked for an update on my condition by the nurses. Once I was fully awake, two detectives came in to interview me. I'm not sure they were with the local police force, given how much information they already had that they asked me about. They claim they had collected statements from the people that I had scared in the town, and gathered from them that I had been in the swamp for work, and bad stuff had happened. They were in the process of sending a task force to the area as we spoke, and needed more information to lead the officers to where they needed to go. I watched as the IV injected fluids into me, and I retold what I have just told you now. I told the story of the swamp, how it lured us in with mysterious ruins and strange happenings, and how it slowly picked us off, one by one, without even the slightest bit of effort. I don't think they believed most of my story. I was able to point out a rough area to where we had been, as well as the clearing that Auburn could be found. They found the camp, the solar panels broken, and the equipment inside the tent was destroyed. I know that it wasn't broken when I left. They did find bits of what seemed to be cement around the area, further affirming my statements. A search and rescue was conducted for Morrison, Scheller, and Tedder. No evidence, clues, or other sign of them was ever found. Auburn's body was found with a helicopter flyover, and a recovery was made with a dive team. I was sent to a therapist to try and get over the trauma that the swamp had caused me. But no amount of therapy helps you get over people vanishing, walking statues, and watching others die in front of you with no way to stop it. My story sounds absurd to any rational person. And there are parts of it I still don't believe, too. I still have many unanswered questions, and I know that I will never have an answer for them. Morrison, Tedder, Auburn, and Scheller are gone. I was never arrested for their deaths, and I was never asked to come back to work. I was contacted a month after I left the hospital by someone within the government who asked me to sign some papers. The papers said that my hospital bills, recovery needs, and all future monetary requirements would be paid for by the U.S. government. In return, I agreed that I would not return to work, nor answer any questions in regard to the events that occurred. I looked at the first check when it arrived in my direct deposit. In the memo line, handwritten exactly the same way each time, was contractor pay. The checks came weekly and were in the amount of $1,400. $23.35. I fear for anyone else 
that may encounter the horrors within the swamp. And I hope to God that no one else enters it. The government seemed to know something when it contacted us, wanting information, and when things went wrong, they didn't want their secret getting out. Thank you for listening to this patron-exclusive story. And thank you for being a patron.